I've, I've said for years, in my next life, I'm going to be tall. I'm going to have a neck and cheekbones. Well, you at least did the tall part, didn't you? And only in Hawaii was I ever allowed to talk without shoes. This is wonderful. Oh, feels so good. I have a quarter till, is that what you have? And although when Rick sent me the program, I wrote him and thanked him for having nothing between my talk and, and your dinner, but uh, he indicated that wasn't what that space meant, I promise <laughs> you have only one Al-Anon speaker this weekend, and you have all these A's. I think, you, you know, it would just even it up a little. <laughs> Reg, is this okay? Okay. Boy, this seems strange. Never been to Saul. <laughs> My name is Blanche, and I'm an enthusiastic member of a worldwide fellowship called Al-Anon High. <laughs> I have been in reluctant recovery since July 7th. 1964, but I, yeah. you just don't die, you don't keep going to meetings, I mean, it'll, it'll stack up. You understand I was a mere slip of a girl when I got here, don't you? But I have been addicted to mood-changing, mind-altering men ever since I can remember. Yeah. I always get a little identification with that, you bet. 36 years makes me a survivor, not a savior. I need to remember that and to remember that at all times I'm one person away from an obsession. I, uh, I was in Oregon last weekend, and when I told him I'd be in Nebraska this weekend, now, Oregon scenery is, you know, spectacular. And they didn't say anything unkind. They just said, oh. <laughs> and I said, I can hardly wait. They are the best audience in the world, and you are. I think this is my seventh time, maybe eighth, to Nebraska. And I shouldn't be so dependent on the response of the audience, but I am. And so I appreciate you. I told them that, and this is true at the Cornhusker in Omaha, they stomp their feet and whistle as if they were at a football game, you know? <laughs> now, you don't have to do that, but I, <laughs> I appreciate your response. Second time, I guess, I talked in Nebraska, I happened to wear a red dress. And everyone assumed I wore it for you all and said so. As they told me, you know, thank you after I talked, they said, oh, and you wore red for us. And so I've worn red ever since when I talk in Nebraska. <laughs> it is not my best color, but John is better than orange. <laughs> no, no. The color is better. The color is better. Gosh, it didn't occur to me you misunderstand that. Sometimes people call and ask us to talk somewhere. We never hear from them again. Till maybe a week before time, I want to thank Rick and Marcella for being attentive and uh, keeping in touch and letting me not feel, my gosh, what's going on? Do they still expect me, you know? That's a, that's a little grace when you're doing things like this, and I thank them. I thank Dwayne for meeting us. turned out Steve and I came in on the same plane. I didn't know that. We could have had a meeting all the way here if we'd known. Can you imagine how thrilling it is for an Aldon to get two alcoholics captive in a car? 
I had a wonderful time all the way back. <laughs> and I thank you always for your hospitality, for the basket of goodies in my room, and for the smiles of welcome on your faces. It's no wonder I left to come here. Besides, you're nice people. Sort of like Minnesota people. Right. Yeah, right. Uh, that isn't just my opinion, but it is my opinion. <laughs> so I love to come be with you. For a long time now, I have been trying to be as open and as honest as I know how to be when I have a chance to share my program. See, it would be easier to tell you what I think than how I feel. It would be easier just to lecture you about the teachings of Al-Anon than to tell you how they work in my life. But I want to share. I don't want to lecture. You told me years ago, that which does not come from the heart does not reach the heart. I want to reach your hearts this afternoon. So I'll do my best to talk to you from mine. Because you told me I can ask for what I need, I need you loving me back, please, while I'm talking. I can feel it when you do. And it gives me strength. It in- encourages me. I, uh, I was in Taos a few years ago, and they were selling buttons that said, A good convention is like an orgy. When it's over, you don't know who made you feel good. <laughs> I, of course, have no idea what that means, but... Uh, I'm glad you thought that was funny. I always wonder a little before I tell it. (laughs) But it's the truth. I have the button at home. (laughs) Anyway, I came here to participate in your weekend and not to perform. I don't don't ever talk without having a few notes in front of me, and that bothers some people. They say, well, God can tell me what to say. Well, good. Of course he does. But he isn't limited to the minute I step onto the podium to telling me what to say. I've known I was coming, well, two years actually, because I was due last year. And of course I have an idea, at least, of what I want to say to you. I envy people who don't need notes. I taught school a long time. Maybe it's all those years of making out lesson plans. But if it bothers you, I suggest you call your sponsor and discuss acceptance. (laughs) It's... It's very hard to tell your story once or twice a month for 30-some-odd years and not... I don't know how to vary it. I mean, I only have one story. I'm not going to go out and do it over again, so I'll have something different to tell you. And those of you who have heard me or who have heard tapes, try not to mouth it along with me, please. (laughs) That distracts me. Don't Don't do that. Don't do that. Anyway, I would rather you leave here thinking what a marvelous program than what a marvelous speaker. When I was a little girl, I lived in Jacksonville, Florida, the first 10 years of my life. It was then even a big city. And when I heard sirens on ambulances and fire trucks, I would clutch my mother's hand. I was so scared. And when she realized that it was frightening for me, she said, Oh, no, honey. She said, always be happy when you hear that sound. It means help is on the way. And then she said, uh, we can always say a little silent prayer for the person that needs the help. And I thought of that not long ago, and I thought, if I had a portable siren, when I make an Allen on talk, I would put it right here and I would sound it. And then I would say to you, help is on the way. And... Uh, 
I wish I could work that out. That would be it. <laughs> it's, um, it's such a bit of good news that we share, those of us who are privileged to share our program in various places. I came into Al-Anon kicking, screaming, touching my halo, wrapping my robes of righteousness about me. Heels dug in, protesting to everyone who would listen, and a lot of people that didn't care, that I was fine, thank you. I had not done the drinking, I did not need the therapy, and if we had sobriety at our house, everything would be just fine. See, I can't say that with a straight face today. (laughs) But I believed it then. I am so grateful that God led me to a group of people who were serious about recovery. Uh, What I know of Al-Anon principles today, I know not because I read them somewhere or someone recited them to me, but because the principles were practiced lovingly and tenderly on me. They loved me when I was unlovable. (laughs) They forgave me when my behavior was pretty well unforgivable. I was condescending and patronizing, and I know they got the impression because that's what I was thinking, that I could help them out if they would just listen. I want you to know God has sent me newcomers like that ever since. I I have told him I got the message. Before I learned anything, I learned some things Al-Anon is not. I needed to know that it is not a ladies' auxiliary. We had fewer men 36 years ago than we do now. And it's not a stitch and bitch club. I... uh, I was pretty good at bitching, but I, I can't stitch anything till this day. It was not just a coffee clatch. It was a, full of people who were serious about getting well. And I, I'll say this, although you may not have this problem in Nebraska, we do in Texas. There are well-meaning members of Alcoholics Anonymous who refer to any non-alcoholic in their family as an Al-Anon. I hope so. I hope they are. But that's like referring, sometimes, it's like referring to a still-drinking alcoholic as a member of AA. So please, for our purposes this afternoon, an Al-Anon is someone who is a member in good attendance of an Al-Anon group, who has a sponsor, who does some sponsoring, who studies the literature, who works the steps, and who practices the program. If you hear anyone else talking about Al-Anon, don't listen. Those people are uninformed. They're not carrying the message. They're spreading the disease. Anyway, I learned that we were not coffee bakers, coffee makers, and cookie bakers. (laughs) And above all, we are not AA groupies. Sometimes uh, that needs explaining, too. Our program is not a therapeutic tool for the treatment of alcoholism, never claimed to be. Doesn't propose to save marriages, only sanity. I thought both of those were in good shape when I got to you, but I lived to learn better than that. And you know, happily ever after doesn't mean walking hand in hand into the sunset together. Not always. Happily ever after means my personal recovery. So I have a success story to share with you this afternoon. I'm going to use an analogy I always use. Excuse me. Oh. It's worked for you, Steve. Okay. All right. Well, before I do that, um, I want to say, because some of you are members of AA, first, thank you for your courage in coming to an Alabama meeting. I admire that, respect that. 
And Al-Anon is not the enemy, okay? We're the people who loved you and loved you and loved you. Sometimes when you were just a tad less than lovable. And uh, I like it when I'm at a convention like this where what we share is our recovery. What we stress is what we have in common and not our differences. Our literature tells us how to make an Al-Anon talk. I'm going to memorize this in a year now, but not yet. It says, Al-Anon talks can be, and too often are, merely a repetition of past or present sorrows. Now, sketching the background is important, and it has its place, but it's only the foundation of the talk, the best Al-Anon talk, the one that helps the most people to the highest degree, is the one that brings out just how the program works and just how the speaker follows it. A good talk can be divided into three parts. How sick I was, how well I am, what helped me to get well. Of these three, the emphasis should be on what helped me to get well. Father Martin says when he's sitting out there and you're up here, he says you're playing with my life. Don't tell me how sick you were without telling me how well you are. So I want to spend the majority of the minutes I have with you this afternoon telling you what helped me to get well. I was born on my grandmother's farm on Christmas Day, northeast Florida. I no longer say the year of our Lord, which one. I, uh, I, had, I had reached the point where I not only lie about my age, but I forget what I said that it was. And so it's just better left unknown. I'm somewhere between Blue Lagoon and Golden Pond, all right? <laughs> My family has been in Florida seven generations. We were not tourists. Tourist was a bad word. Anytime I behaved in a manner my mother considered inappropriate, she would say, don't act like a tourist. <laughs> I'm a very good tourist when I go places now. <laughs> Lived in um, Jacksonville until I was 10. And then we moved to Pensacola, and I think of Pensacola as my hometown. I'm not trying to teach you geography, but this made me who I am. Jacksonville is on the Georgia border and the Atlantic Ocean. Pensacola is on the Alabama border. I mean, on the border. I could ride my bicycle over into Alabama and on the Gulf of Mexico. And at that time, that top layer of Florida was Georgia and Alabama. It was the deep south. Uh, you couldn't, well, I can't carry on about what I don't think is progress, but uh, it has been discovered and overbuilt and all of those things now. But it was a wonderful place to grow up, Pensacola was. I am so grateful I had that beautiful town in which to, in which to grow up. Uh, back in Jacksonville, I had a talented, sensitive, charming, intelligent, Alcohol is any other kind, alcoholic father. Unfortunately, he was violent. I was never, thank God, ever sexually abused, but I was very badly battered. I wouldn't say that into a microphone for years, but I decided it needs saying it is not that uncommon in an alcoholic home. Let me say quickly, it isn't always the alcoholic who does the battering. But a home full of sick people, you're going to have, more often than not, some violence. I tried to keep it from my mother. I was a candidate for Al-Anon, you know, even then. I was going to protect her. And uh, I managed to do that. 
for, for a lot of time. It reaches the point where you cannot hide the bruises and the blood. And so everyone says, why didn't you tell your mother? It would have hurt her. That's why I didn't tell her. Little as I was. I think of those years a lot because I seem to be telling it to people often. We lived in abject and grinding poverty. I'm a child of the Depression. I don't mean not enough luxuries. I mean not enough food. My house is always stocked. I could withstand a six-month siege. Uh, And that's okay. (laughs) We didn't have uh, adequate clothing. We didn't have good shelter. We lived in a blighted area of that very large city. And I'm making that point to tell you this. Even there, the children in the neighborhood were not allowed to play with me. I know now that their parents were understandably apprehensive about what was going on at my house. But you don't know that when you're four and five and six years old. And I felt rejection and rage. We all went to the same neighborhood school. I could beat the socks off every one of them, and I relished every minute of it. I'm sorry. Uh, that's, the, that's what it took. I know, they, <laughs> I know we aren't supposed to feel vengeful, but I did. And it felt good to me. Now, that's not a good motivation, but it had a happy byproduct. I fell in love with learning, and I've never fallen out of love with it. And to this day, the most exciting thing is a new idea, and the older we get, the fewer of them we encounter, as you know. (laughs) Finally, when my mother realized the violence going on, he never hit her. Let me say this. He loved me, and I knew it, and I adored him. And it just seemed to me in those little, yeah, I was so little in those years, that he just sort of went crazy every now and then. If some well-meaning social worker had swooped in and taken me out of that home, I would have been devastated. I'm glad those decisions aren't mine to make. They were divorced when I was eight. My mother remarried a couple of years later. A man that as it happened didn't drink at all. We had no luxuries then, but we had the necessities of life, and college was considered a luxury. Besides, no one in my family had ever gone to college, and they were a little mystified as to why I wanted to. And I wanted to go to college in Texas. And uh, we didn't have guidance counselors in schools in those days, and I had to do some of my own research. But I found the two best English departments in the South were at Baylor and at North Carolina. Duke. Duke University in North Carolina. If I had gone to school in North Carolina, I would have married a North Carolina alcoholic, of course. But uh, my mother pointed out that I'd have to pay for it myself. I knew that. And if I had another hour to talk to you, I'd tell you the series of miracles that made it possible for me to get to college and through college. And then she said, it's all right with me if Baylor was and still is a very expensive private school. Then she said, if you want to go to college in Texas, it's all right with me. But she said, make up your mind you're going to spend the rest of your life out there because she said you'll end up marrying a Texan and they don't transplant. (laughs) (laughs) My father-in-law used to say there were unfortunate people forced to live somewhere else for a while, sometimes 50 or 60 years, but there was no ex-Texans, none, you know. You've been around Texas enough to know some of the reason for that. Texans have never forgotten that they were once a nation. (laughs) That's the kind of pride that they feel. 
That's true of the entire South, however briefly we were a nation. And it's a bond that it's hard for people to understand who didn't have that in their ancestry, you know. Not better, not worse, but different. And I think maybe that's okay. This same father-in-law said, never ask, he reared his children, never ask a man where he's from. If he's from Texas, he'll tell you. If he's not, it's not nice to embarrass him. (laughs) (laughs) I know that seems like a bit much. We do it mostly for fun, mostly. Even the bumper stickers that say on earth as it is in Texas. We had until a few years ago, we had a governor and a lieutenant governor who were both by their own admission recovering alcoholics. My husband said that that made the entire state of Texas eligible for (laughs) Al-Anon. Well, it was, of course, inevitable that I marry an alcoholic. I want you to know I tried not to. I thought if I never dated anyone who drank, I would be safe. And so I dated and my college sweetheart, a young man who didn't drink. Well, you didn't drink at Baylor. You were sent home anyway. No questions asked. You were just sent home. So it wasn't hard at Baylor to date someone who didn't drink. You know, it's kind of a Baptist convent, co-educational <laughs> convent. And uh, I learned from you later. I used to be able to quote the page in your big book that says uh, drinking is only a symptom. Liquor is only a symptom. And it was explained to me that it's as if he had been tubercular, but he hadn't yet started hemorrhaging. They said it's as if that symptom had not yet manifested. But of course I found an alcoholic to marry. The first man I ever loved, you know, was alcoholic. That's, I got my feelings of self-worth by taking care of, rescuing. So you may be sure I found someone who would give me a chance to do it on a regular basis. But I want you to know I tried not to. I know now that, oh, by the way, it's great for your guilt if you marry someone and then he starts drinking. You can always think, you know, Al-Anons have this quota of guilt we have to fill every day anyway. (laughs) And and I grew up Southern Baptist, John, not remotely Catholic. (laughs) If if, I, I can't tell you how many times I felt awful because he never drank till he married me. And if I hadn't, there were people overjoyed to point that out to me. And they did so regularly. (laughs) I know now that we had matching neuroses. I do not think we have the same illness. There are people who do. I think we have matching neuroses like this, and we nourish them in each other for a very long time. I believe today that sick people marry sick people, and they rear sick children. And I hope you don't let anyone tell you anything different. Uh, I not only grew up, in a family like that, but I, you know, developed one of my own. I had two children that proved the point, and I worked with thousands and thousands of them in high schools. We were married. We lived in Corpus Christi for a year, and then we lived in San Antonio for four years. Our babies were born there. Don't miss San Antonio if you ever go to Texas. It's really, really a charming city. I didn't want to leave it when I left, but. Uh, We moved out to West Texas to my husband's hometown, Odessa. The landscape is somewhat like that of the moon. If you you haven't been to West Texas, I will tell you. Um, My mother thought I'd moved to the end of the world, 
she used to call it Odesolate. <laughs> I never got used to the barrenness nor the dust storms, but I loved those people. I have a theory totally unsubstantiated, as most of mine are. I have a theory that when you live in inhospitable, unforgiving climates, those people develop an attitude of they don't know there's anything they can't do, so they do it, you know. I noticed it in North and South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, the prairie provinces of Canada. I look out at those faces, and I can see them crossing covered wagons. I certainly would never have done that, but I, I believe those people did. Besides, at that time, West Texas was what Clancy would call a pocket of enthusiasm. I'm grateful that's where we got our sickest, and I'm grateful that's where we found you. Uh, the people are incredible. I, I, I say that everywhere I go, and when I talk in West Texas, they think I'm just being nice to them. I say, no, really, I say this everywhere. They, they have an inner strength and a determination. I think you kind of have to have to live out there. I, I miss them. I had some slogans I lived by while Charles was drinking before you gave me better ones. I didn't know I had these till I got enough recovery to look back. But one slogan was, what will people think? Did you have that one? Uh, what about don't rock the boat? If he's sober, don't talk about drinking. Did you ever say to yourself, it's not that bad yet? Did you ever say, guess what I'm mad about? <laughs> Charles used to tell people I could ask him a question, answer it myself, and go away mad. <laughs> Not so, of course. I did all the wrong things while he was drinking, and I kept on doing them. Our literature says, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you always got. But I didn't know that then, and... Uh, I had a cleaning woman. God bless her. I wish I still had her. She was wonderful. And uh, during football season, while she ironed clothes, she would watch football. Everyone in Texas is a football fan. I don't have to convince you of that in Nebraska. <laughs> there are places I go where they nod politely, and I think, no, you don't understand. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, they think they do. They know the meaning of the words, but they don't know. Anyway, she never caught on to instant replay. And she used to say to me, maybe this time he'll catch it. <laughs> That's what I was like. I heard her say that once and thought, That's what I've been doing all these years. The same thing over and over, like instant replay. Maybe this time he'll quit drinking. Maybe this time. And of course it didn't work. I always did what I always had done, you know. So I lied for him and protected him. I played let's pretend as diligently as he drank. He was almost literally loved to death, and that can happen. I've never learned how to love a little bit or temporarily. I've never unloved anyone I've ever loved. There's a writer I like who says love never dies. It just exists in a quieter place. And I have a lot of love existing in quieter Places I used to wish I could love casually. I've decided I don't want to. That kind of love doesn't help or heal anybody. I was as obsessed with him as he was compelled to drink. I'd like you to think I stayed out of love and loyalty. I didn't. I stayed out of pride. And that's 
why I explained to you where I grew up. One did not air one's dirty linen in public in the Deep South. You didn't live with a man and criticize him to other people. And uh, it was it was uh, it was the kind of upbringing where you might be too poor to paint, but you're too proud to whitewash. Does that make sense to you? We had patched cloth napkins as poor as we were because you just had cloth napkins. That's what nice people did. The genteel poor, I believe we were called. And we were expected, at least my generation of females, to flash our dimples and flutter our eyelashes and swish our skirts, but it was understood we were made of steel and we could cope. Do you remember Scarlett O'Hara in the sweet potato field? You know, I'll never be hungry again. That kind of coping. Not everything they taught me was wrong, but on some of them it just didn't go far enough. I was taught to keep the men happy and everything else falls into place. I have no quarrel with that. I wish they had said, don't give up big chunks of your own personhood to do this. And, and they didn't say that. <laughs> I, uh, I was a steel magnolia long before there was a movie and a play by that name. So my solution was to try harder. See, I'd had a very inauspicious beginning. I was the battered child in a poverty-stricken household of a violent alcoholic, and I paid my way through an expensive university. I married the man I wanted, who was handsome and brilliant and could be charming when it suited him, and I had two children who are altogether remarkable. I'll try to convince you of that in a few minutes, as yours are. And I had them when I wanted them, and uh, I didn't understand people who couldn't cope. My thinking was, if I could manage, anybody could. So I had no tolerance for and understanding of people who messed up their lives. Every time I managed to verbalize something to my sponsor, she usually could fix it, straighten it out in my mind. It was a long time before I mentioned this to her. And instead of saying, you're a self-righteous prig, she said, we are not morally superior to sick people. Over and over and over. I did a few things right during the worst of those years, though. I never called Charles a drunk. I never thought of him as a drunk. I was married to a very fine man who drank too much. I knew he was sick. I didn't know those terms. But I knew at some level I knew that he wouldn't be that way because he wanted to be. And that helped. I uh, had a God I understood, not God as I understand him today, but who was my handhold on sanity before I got to you. And I had a family doctor who gave me Al-Anon without knowing that's what he was doing. He would say, you have to do what's necessary for your sanity and your serenity regardless. And he knew just which button to push. He would say, your children need one stable parent. Now, need was the operative word. If you needed me, I was putty in your hands. I still have to watch that. I don't go into orphanages or pet stores, for instance. (laughs) It was this doctor who suggested I return to teaching. I had taught school before I married, but back then, a good mother did not work outside her home. We were so rule-bound, you know. He wrote, return to teaching on a prescription pad. I used to tell my students they were a doctor's prescription. (laughs) Now, I am not spontaneous. I wish I were. I have worked my way up to flexible, but I'll never make frivolous. And so um, I thought of this for a year before I did it. 
And I did return to teaching in a very large, very affluent, very fine high school. I taught juniors, high school English. I loved every minute of it. Well, every day of it anyway. Sometimes I wish for retroactive birth control, but not usually. I just really loved teaching it. It's what I felt I was born to do. Meanwhile, Charles was trying to find some answer to this insanity, and he tried, oh, you know, the, the sources, uh, ministers, lay counselors, medical doctors. No one said alcoholism. He mentioned later that he never told any of them how much he drank either, which would, you know, tend to make a difference. Finally, a business acquaintance of his said, we have a psychologist in Odessa who does family counseling. You might want to talk to her. So for the first and only time in his life, this man was ready to get some counseling. It was January 1964. Are there moments in your life so graced, so lucid, that you remember everything about them? If I ask you where you were when Kennedy was shot, for instance, you'll remember. But this is that kind of moment. I was still home from school for the Christmas holidays, and the phone rang and she gave me her name, which I knew, of course, she said, I, uh, I need to tell you that your husband is an alcoholic. This is a family illness. I need to talk to you, too. And all of my deep south courtesy went out the window, and I said, you're out of your mind, and hung up. Before I could leave the room, the phone rang again, and when I answered it, she said, don't hang up. I know what you've been through. Well, she couldn't know. I hadn't told anybody. She couldn't possibly know. But I stood there with the phone in my hand. I thought all the tears had long since been shed. And I cried, and I cried, and I cried. That was your first gift to me, even before I got to you. I cry anytime I please now. Charles used to say I could cry reading menus or telephone directories. <laughs> no, but supermarket openings are very touching, don't you? <laughs> Olympic Games. When he gets a gold medal and they play his national anthem, well, I'm just a basket case. <laughs> Television commercials. You know, the, the soldier comes home and his little sister meets him at the bottom of the stream. Remember that? Well, it's, it's a freedom. And I cry when necessary. <laughs> and sometimes when it's not. She sent us to you, and for six months I went with him to open AA meetings. And if anyone had the bad judgment to invite me to Al-Anon, I explained I, was, I had not done the drinking. I was kind but cool. I had not done the drinking, and I didn't need the therapy, but thank you very much. <laughs> oh, they were, so, they were so loving to me. We went to San Antonio for the 4th of July weekend. I told you we always loved it. We went back every chance we got, and Charles got very drunk. We were sitting at the landing on the river, and uh, I know now it wasn't the worst drunk or the longest one, and I know I wasn't surprised. I didn't expect him to quit drinking. Don't you know that attitude helped him a lot? To this man's credit, he never drove drunk or hungover. And so I was driving when we went home, and he said, I'm going to have to tell my group about this. I'm due to get a six-month chip next week. Do you give little mementos of sobriety in your group? We gave poker chip key rings. In my appalling ignorance, I said, well, I won't tell anybody. And I have to tell you that because... That's the first time in his life, to my knowledge, certainly since we had married, that he was going to say to a group of people he hardly knew, I was wrong, I made a mistake. 
I wanted to go take another look at them. I wanted to be the one to get him sober. After all, he would have been saved by the love of a good woman. And he would have been grateful to me the rest of his life. And you, would have, you may be sure I would have seen to it that he was. That's when I begin to learn that God doesn't use me where I tell him to. If I can get myself out of the way enough, there are times when I believe he uses me. But I don't get to call the shots. I am not in charge of that. So I went back. And someone asked me to Al-Anon, and I could hear her, and I hadn't heard anyone else. I used to say, I don't know why I heard her. I have done three, I think, very comprehensive and thorough fourth and fifth steps. And with the very first one, God revealed to me far more about myself than I wanted to know. And one of the things he revealed was why I could hear her. And I hate to tell you, but rigorous honesty, she was someone I thought was as good as I was. She had everything I considered important. She had beauty and breeding and brains and education and money and prestige. By the way, she still has everything I consider important. It's just a very different list this afternoon. (laughs) And so uh, I honored them with my presence. And I told you I was condescending and patronizing. And I'm not proud of that, but I'll get to that some more in a minute. We have a pamphlet entitled Living with Sobriety. And in it it says, while sobriety can be a welcome miracle, it does not guarantee happiness. We had a very stormy and difficult first few years. We didn't come in on a pink cloud. Charles was stark raving sober, very much aware of all my defects of character, no longer held back by guilt from mentioning them loudly and clearly and frequently. And I was trying not to give up that overlay of fantasy that said, we're a normal family, there's nothing wrong with us. We didn't toss the the word denial around as much then as we do now, but I was really sunk deep into it. Maybe this is a good place to tell you that I had married considerably above myself. Charles used to say, don't say that. I don't know any other way to say it. Uh, They had a lot of money, a lot of prestige. There was nobody not allowed to play with me anymore. And I thought if I went down there to that building with those people, I would lose all of that. I had been praying for help, but I thought God was showing very poor taste that this was not what I had in mind at all. I was, of course, was I was in bad shape. I, uh, I got to hurry. During, during the, okay, we're not in competition in our fellowships as to who suffers more. I do not know the pain of an alcoholic. I know the pain of watching someone you love with every cell of your being killing himself and being powerless to help. And I will match that pain against nearly any I know. You can't bear pain like that. And so what I did was just shut down. It's as if I thought feelings had valves, and I could turn off the one marked anger. I could turn off the one marked self-pity, resentment. I didn't know till much later there's one valve, and it's marked feelings. So I just shut them all off, and I got to you emotionally frozen. And you loved me until I could love myself, until all the ice melted. Or it's as if I got to you in armor, uh, full body armor, with a sword and a shield. The sword because I was mad, hostile, and the shield because no one was going to hurt me anymore. And when I looked out from the chink in my armor, you know, the natives were friendly. (laughs) And I slowly, slowly put down the sword first. I didn't have to fight you. 
And when I felt safe enough, I put down the shield. I don't batter on people's walls, their armor anymore, their defenses. They have them because they need them. I used to do that. Let me in. I want to be your friend. That's kind of an emotional rape. I don't do that anymore. I think when they feel safe enough, the different parts of the armor will be discarded. That's the way it was with me. And I began to hear the program, and not all at once, and not from just one person. Alcoholism was not trendy in 1964. There were not treatment centers on every corner. There were not announcements on television every 30 minutes. There were not celebrities shattering every tradition we have and shouting to the heavens that they were alcoholic and, you know, what I'm saying. Uh, it was a stigma. It was a real stigma back then comes out a little later in my story that uh, I was a school counselor and I had kindergarten through 12th grade in a little country school. One time I was returning a little boy to his classroom. We had been visiting first grader. He said, my teacher's not here today. And I said, yeah, I noticed. We walked a little farther and he said, she's sick. I said, yeah. And then he said, when I'm sick, they don't send another little boy and they had sent him another teacher, of course. And I had to explain to him that uh, no one could learn for him. That came to my mind. But that's how much how I felt when I got into the program. I wanted someone to recover for me. And no one else could. And it was ent- entirely up to me. No one could get well for me. My group said that you don't hear the answer until you've asked the question. They said, we can't teach someone who already knows everything. Why would they tell me that? They said, uh, my sponsor said, you can't uh, put new wine in old bottles. God can only fill an empty vessel, she said. You're going to have to unlearn some things. And uh, I did, uh, partly through being pushed and shoved and partly because I began to see how much better it was. Let me mention a few things that I'll bet you had to unlearn too. Maybe not, but I did. I had been taught God helps those who help themselves. Did you get that one? He does not, you know. He helps those who ask. Because the times I've needed him most desperately, I could not have helped myself if my life had depended on it. And it very nearly did. God helps those who ask. And, oh, I got this one. And learned it well. Mature people stand on their own two feet. Did you hear that? They, uh, they don't ask for help. It's a sign of weakness, you know. They, uh, it was considered uh, imposing on other people, if you ask them for help, that kind of thing. And you told me that babies are dependent. You said they will die if we don't take care of them. Adolescents are independent. I'll do it myself. It's part of their process of maturing. But I was told repeatedly that happily mature people are interdependent. I don't know about your life. God does not send me visions, nor do I hear voices. I'm not being sarcastic. I think some people do. Experience those things, I don't. And in my life, he talks to me through you. That means I have to listen to all of you. I have to listen to people I don't like. I wish he wouldn't talk to me through them, but sometimes he does. And that it didn't mean a sick, clinging neediness, not that kind of needing other people. But because we need to hear God, we need to hear other people, and he will speak to us that way. 
Um, I know that some pain is necessary for my spiritual education, but you told me that misery was optional and I don't opt to be miserable anymore. If you could see my long-distance charges, you would understand that I did learn to ask for help. If I can't make it through the night in Texas, California is still awake. And even if they're asleep, there's Hawaii. (laughs) I have learned to ask for help. You told me that I had not only a right to, but a responsibility for taking care of myself emotionally. I didn't know that. I had been in emotional slavery. I know that I know today that some pain can be avoided. I do not have to die on every cross today. I said to my sponsor, you don't mean me first. She said, no, I just mean my turn. <laughs> and today, sometimes I can actually say, I believe it's my turn, and when I do, though, I feel so grown up. I feel so <laughs> little flickers of recovery. sponsor, I've had three in 36 years. Wonderful, superb human beings. I learned this from my second sponsor, and if you don't hear anything else I say today, I hope you hear this. It saves me on so many occasions. She said, if you're facing a difficult or challenging situation, Two questions you must ask yourself. One is, what is in my best interest here? Well, you can't do that and be a martyr. And I had been, I had suffered nobly, you know, nobly all those years. I have a friend who says it requires plastic surgery to get her hand off her forehead when she got into the program. But I've learned to ask, either aloud or to myself, what's in my best interest here? And the second question is, what will enable me to like myself later? Oh, that saves so much in the way of amends making. Uh, That got me through a very painful divorce in 1980. I would not change one word I said or one thing I did. That feels so good. I would wish that for all of you. She said, you don't have to like any situation, but it is imperative that you like yourself in it. And so far, most of the time, I'm able to do that. Something else I was taught, what you don't know won't hurt you. What I didn't know nearly destroyed four people. What you don't know can kill you. And so, one by one, I began to unlearn these things so that I could hear you when you talked to me. And I didn't want a spiritual band-aid, you know. I didn't want to settle for crumbs when I knew there was a banquet spread and I was very greedy for this program. There's a story told of the little boy who kept falling out of bed and his parents got into a counselor who asked him, why do you keep falling out of bed? He said, well, I go to sleep too close to where I get in. I didn't want to go to sleep too close to where I came into the program. And you began to teach me spiritual laws. I was a rules keeper. I did everything right. If I didn't know how, I found out how. I'm not over that yet. My second husband died a few years ago, and my first thought, what's the right way to grieve? I've never told that (laughs) at a convention before. Can you imagine? But that was my first thought. I was going to do it right. There must be a book somewhere with instructions on how to grieve. Oh, well, because I have a home group and a sponsor, they disabused me of that notion very quickly, you know. I mentioned spiritual laws are much stricter and harder to follow than the man-made rules. I don't cheat on my income tax. That's no problem. But I love you unconditionally today. And that's a much harder spiritual law. 
By the way, you have nothing to say about that. What I think of you is none of your business. It won't hurt you, and it's a lot of fun for me, so that's the way it is. <laughs> I believe today that Im- the worst immorality is judgment. We talked about this at dinner last night, and I believe every speaker has mentioned it. It is, of course, my worst defect. Either God hasn't seen fit to remove it, or I haven't been willing to give it up. Which do you think? (laughs) I just believe people ought to shape up. I just don't think there's any reason for them acting the way they act. (laughs) The only reason I'm any better about judgment is that the minute I hear myself saying, well, I would never, I do. And sooner rather than later, God gives me that situation to handle. I'm not ready yet to give you examples, but believe me. (laughs) I I hear myself now when I say, well, you would never catch me. I look heavenward and say, scratch that. I, I don't want to have to experience that. Please, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. Of course, I was taught to release this man. With love, they told me. Actually, what my group said was, if you don't like the warts, let go of the frog. I thought that was rather elegantly put. I didn't like the voice. I didn't like the person I had become. I'm not basically a bitch nor a shrew, and I was both of those. Uh, You wouldn't have liked me then at all. Now, I would have turned him over to the Ku Klux Klan or the Communist Party or anyone who would have taken him, and my sponsor would say, no, no, with love. You know, like once more with feelings. I... uh, I did learn how, but to this day, I sometimes have to withdraw emotionally before I can let go. And sometimes I release with anger before I can release with love. But I, everything I've ever released has claw marks all over it, you can tell, where I reluctantly let it go. But I think I've learned how. My children were in college. They were 9 and 10 when we got to you. They were in college, and I said to each of them once, do you feel released? And each one said, released, abandoned. Uh, Sometimes that's how it looks. You know, our amends take different forms for different people. A wonderful AA woman, whom I loved a great deal, pointed this out to me early on. She said, my amends to my children means I will be there with them and for them. Your amends means you will leave them alone once in a while. (laughs) And I understood that. I learned from you that God could work directly through my husband and children, um, through the people I sponsor. I didn't know that. I thought he had to come through me. I had always been so willing to tell them God's will for their lives. They didn't even have to ask. Today, that is a freedom. Today, oh, I'm glad that's my, my responsibility to make their decisions for them. I don't know what's best for them, you know. But I, uh, I think one, one symptom of untreated Alanonism is that we want to rush in and rescue. And today, I can, most of the time, I can listen to you, and I don't give advice. Our program doesn't give advice. When I learned that, I thought, how do you help anybody? And it was explained to me that what we can do is help people see what their available options are. Because I can't always see all the options that are available to me. When I got to you, I thought I had three options. I could divorce Charles. I could live with him while we both tried to recover in our programs. Or I could have a close, warm, loving, communicative marriage. I opted for number three. Unfortunately, that was not an available option for me. 
I hope it is for you. But it wasn't for me. And so what I can do when you want to talk to me or anyone else is help you see what your options are. I quit translating. Did you ever translate? Honey, what your daddy meant was... Sure you did. Sure you did. I'm going to take the time to talk a minute about kids in the program. My children were in Alateen for 10 years each. You see, during those awful years, I had a choice. I could go or stay. They had no choice. I wanted to tell everyone how much their father's drinking had damaged them. And my group made me look at how much I had damaged them, and I thought I couldn't stand it. I would have died for them in a New York minute as you would your child. I have time to mention only two, but let me tell you. First of all, the first ten years of their lives, they were programmed by an enraged mother who kicked and screamed and yelled and threw things. I would undo that if I could. I cannot. I've made all the amends I know how to make for that. I was told that unless I learned to love the woman I used to be, there would be no recovery. They said to me she did the best she could at her level of enlightenment. And I did. I was more than my mistakes even then, and so were you. And I can't say I love her yet, but I certainly have learned to accept her. She really did the best she could with what she had. I think there'll be a special place in heaven. Well, in California, I say an especially beneficial karma for Alateen sponsors. You know, God bless them, bless them, bless them. I had to get my responsibilities straight, not for his disease, although he had convinced me that I was responsible for it, nor for his behavior. And before I could feel too good, they said, on the other hand, you're entirely responsible for your own behavior. I didn't want to hear that. I had had this whipping boy, this scapegoat. If I ever behaved badly, I could blame it on, I mean, if you live with a drunk, you know, hey, you're forgiven for anything you ever do. And I no longer had this whipping boy, and I had to take responsibility. See, I I had to learn to respond rather than react, to choose my reaction. I see that today as a freedom, too. I didn't know I was in emotional slavery, but I was. It's as if I waked up every morning and said to him, Good morning, how do I feel today? Because it depended entirely on him. And he never asked for that. I just handed my self-worth to him on a platter and said, what I think of me will depend on you. We say, don't ever say never, never say always. I have not so far done that with anyone else, nor do I plan to. What a burden to make someone else feel that he's responsible for how you behave. My group said you can take your sails out of his wind. Don't you like that? And neither he nor anyone else need determine the direction in which you go. I didn't learn all this all at once, and I certainly don't know it all. I've learned it slowly and painfully, one incident at a time, and there are days when I think, what program? God who? And I call one of you, and you will always tell me what program and God who. You told me about love, for instance, that if we ever say I love you if it isn't love, that love is unconditional or it isn't love. I said, I can't love people that way. My sponsor said, you already love your children that way. And of course I did. There's nothing they could do that I would love them more. There's nothing they could do that I would love them less. It is a constant. Now, that doesn't mean our behavior doesn't change, but the love doesn't. 
Our book tells us, our books tell us over and over that we do not accept unacceptable behavior. I learned so much about love. I wish I had time to talk just about that. Well, um, after all these years, I live on the growing edge just as much as you do after one year or two or ten or twenty. I need a hand to hold while I look around corners, you know, and there's always a hand there when I reach out. Because this is the family group, I always talk about my children, which is nothing I'd rather do. They're fine, thank you. I think, I think literally thank you. And I think they're fine. They've both been married and divorced. My son is a commercial photographer in Dallas. Of course he does beautiful, sensitive work, but that's not just his mother. He's won two Clios and a number of awards from the American Photographic Association and so forth. Um, we date the people we meet, and he meets models. And back when I had a few hours at the Dallas airport between planes, now I'd have to, you know, race from one gate to another. He would bring one of them out and visit with me for a while. They all weighed 36 pounds and had legs up to their armpits. But uh, <laughs> I told him if I wanted to feel dowdy, I could stay home and iron, you know. <laughs> Neither of my children has done any drugs or drinking. I reared two quintessential caretakers, um, two enablers. I don't know which disease is worse. I know that we suffer from ours, as you do from yours. This is the young man who was my loving child, who would always tell me I was still foxy, who would say, the legs are the last to go, Mama. And uh, when he was a toddler, would say, I'm so glad you're my mommy, you know. But it was this one that in 1988 wrote out of the clear blue sky and said, I don't want to be in this family anymore. Don't write to me. Don't call me. Don't come see me. I thought it would kill me. You don't die from that. What you do is get it to a livable level. I still have days, and it's been 12 years, when I kick and scream and cuss. What can I tell you? I had two notes from him in 1997, and he said, uh, you may not ever want to contact me again, but if you want to write, please do. So I sent him a note every month. Of course, I don't hear from him. But I want him to know that there's nothing he can do that will change my love for him. Uh, I hope he's convinced of that. My daughter had a very successful career as a journalist. She, too, won awards, was making an astronomical salary, was um, political editor of the St. Petersburg Times. You know, Florida was her other home. Uh, she uh, eventually became their national correspondent in Washington, uh, had exciting interviews, exciting trips. I got a lot of vicarious pleasure out of what she was doing. And in 1997, she called me and said, Mother, I have resigned my job. I've been accepted at ministerial school. I'm going to be a unity minister. <laughs> I knew she attended that church, and I knew she was active in it, but a minister? It took every meeting I have ever attended <laughs> to be able to say to her, how, how exciting. <laughs> what an adventure. I wanted to say, you what? You lost your mind? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
we had we had a good talk. You'd have been proud of me. When I hung up, I called my sponsor, yelling, screaming, babbling. <laughs> she did this, and then she don't move. <laughs> when I slowed down enough, she said, who reared that kid? <laughs> she said, who would bring someone up to find the God of her understanding and want to help other people? <laughs> she said, I can't believe anybody. So I dutifully made trips to Kansas City at Lee's Summit and visited her and was there last June to see her ordained and licensed. She is now the associate pastor of the Unity Church in Dallas, which is a very large, prestigious, settled church. She's just as happy as if she had good sense. She <laughs> I told someone this, and I'll tell you, and of course I don't have time, but I will. Um, all her life, since she was 10 years old, she has been Blanche's daughter. And she didn't go to many conventions with me unless they were at Lake Louise, you know, or somewhere like that. But when she did, there were my tapes on the tables out there. I went to her church for the first time last September, and I was Ellen's mother. I loved it. I just loved it. I, that's absolutely all I was. And that was enough. They were, you know, they were overjoyed to have me. After all, I was her mother. And her tapes were in the bookstore. I haven't told that into a microphone yet either. But I feel so safe with you, I can tell you these things, you know. Charles and I lost our marriage for a number of reasons that would not be appropriate for me to go into from up here. I, I was told early on and didn't believe it, marriages made in sickness do not always survive health. Uh, believe it. Of course, a great many do. But ours didn't, uh, because people who love us want to know, he did not leave me for another woman, no. I didn't throw him out for another man, and he did not resume drinking. He would have had 24 years continuous sobriety in July of 1988, but he died in April of that year. I was astonished at the intensity of my grief. We had been divorced eight years at that time, and I had not seen him then. But it's as if, it's as if we'd been together all the time. Our recovery had taken us down different roads and in different directions. I don't know why, but something toxic happened when we tried to relate to each other that didn't happen when we related to other people. I could not gain any further recovery in the framework of a marriage that was sick beyond healing that had been damaged beyond repair. Charles had disorders other than alcoholism, and he chose not to have those treated. We were not friends. Friends share feelings, you know. Friends joy in each other's presence. But there was no villain in the divorce, no one wearing a black hat. I never had more direct guidance than when I realized that I, too, would go to any lengths to get well. After a long marriage, a divorce is like an amputation. And there's phantom pain where the relationship used to be. But even though you know it saved your life, it's, it's agonizing. The, the pain was just incredible. I'll always regret not the divorce, but the necessity for it, as I would regret having lost an arm or leg. You had taught me I never backed out into a corner, shake my finger in his face and say, why me? After all, why not me? Huh? I'm supposed to say to him, what am I supposed to understand from this? What is this supposed to teach me? And I did that. I did that pretty steadily for a few years. Um, not all the answers are in, but I can tell you one or two. 
I think I'm supposed to understand that I don't have to know what the future holds because I know who holds the future. Much of what John said a while ago. And uh, this is a big one for a woman of my generation. I'm a whole person without a man. And the men who have been in my life since then are there because we both wanted the relationship and not because one of us had a loose umbilical cord we were trying to plug into the other for a life support system. <laughs> if you love teaching, you do a great deal of counseling. And so I figured I might as well get a piece of paper that said I could. So after the divorce, I investigated graduate schools. I um, had encouragement from my children. You had told me I deserved the best, so I settled at the University of Texas, John. For the longest, hardest master's program I could find in the state, <laughs> it was uh, three years, 54 hours and a thesis. I said to my children, three years, do you know how old I'll be in three years if I go get a master's degree? And my son said, how old will you be in three years if you don't? <laughs> no one had explained it to me like that. <laughs> And I pulled up roots, and I sold my house, and I left my comfort zone. And you would have laughed to see me in graduate school. I kept wanting to teach the class. I could have done a better job, too. Uh, college professors don't get teacher training, you know. Besides, I wanted to say, honey, what the professor meant was, you know, and tell them. <laughs> I also wanted to correct the professor's grammar, but I didn't do that. Oh, but I could have. I did get the degree in counseling psychology. I went to work part-time at Austin Community College. I was self-supporting through my own contributions, and the rent was coming due pretty regularly, and that was only a part-time job, so I uh, had to go to work. That's when I went to the little country school I told you about. I stayed at the college to teach one class a week. It was a class in human sexuality. It had to be taught by a counselor. Interesting being interviewed for it. How do you explain to anyone you're qualified to teach a sex class? No one can claim to have majored in it in college, but you and I know people who tried, don't we? <laughs> they finally asked, this is committee, you know, interviewing me. They finally asked what I thought was a very intelligent question. They said, how did you learn about sex in your family of origin? And you who taught me to be honest said, and it's the God's truth, I had an aunt who was the matriarch in our family, and I heard her say to my mother many, many times, when it's time to tell Blanche Marie the facts of life, let me do it, you'll make it sound entirely too exciting. <laughs> but my mother told me, thank you very much. One thing about a sex class, and by the way, don't get smart, it was lecture, not lab, okay? <laughs> Unlike the kids in my English classes, these kids never once said, uh, why are we learning this? We'll never use this. <laughs> change is very hard for me. I'm sure it's not for any of you, but I'm going to close by telling you of the changes I made, and then I'll be through. Uh, to my surprise, well, first I'll tell you how I learned I had to change. First week on the new job, another first grader. Mother called me and said, he has a lot of trouble on the school bus and he won't talk to us. Would you tell us if he'll talk to you? Took him in, darling little boy. I said, tell me what happens on the bus. Well, he said, they pester me. I said, uh-huh, what do you do? Well, I don't use dirty words. 
I said, I am so glad. What, what do you do? Reached over and got my tablet. Now, very laboriously, tongue between the teeth, he printed H-S-I-T. He says, I wrote that down. I said, uh-huh. Then what? Well, I showed it to them. I said, yeah. He said, well, they couldn't read it. Well, now, <laughs> I was a fire horse hearing the bell. You don't wave a misspelled word in front of an English teacher. I said, honey, you didn't spell it right. That's why they couldn't read it. Look, this is how you spell it. I was crossing the T before I thought, oops. I don't think this is in my job specifications. Nowhere does it say teach obscenities to six-year-olds. But if he's needed the word since, he knows how to spell it. I've always hoped when he went home that day, no one said, what did you learn in school? (laughs) I was a precious little boy. I wonder what happened to him. I was, to my surprise, happy living alone. I didn't know I would be, but I was. Uh, I always have to say this carefully. I'm not young, and I have never been beautiful, but I like men a great deal, and there's usually one or two kind enough to like me. And for 11 years, I had friendships and relationships I wouldn't have missed for anything. And I had been hanging out with Bob Miller for a while. And about once a year, one of us would mention marriage. And we depended on the other one to say, oh, things are good the way they are. So that had been going on for a while. <laughs> it's, um, he's, he was the funniest man I ever knew. I'm sorry. I wish I had time to tell you things he said. But I was going to talk in Tulsa. He lived in Temple, which is north of where I live, and I was in Austin. But we talked on the phone every night. Now, sometimes I step outside my program just a minute to do a little managing and controlling. Um, Somebody has to, and I am so good at it. So I stepped outside my program for a minute and said, your 25th AA birthday is in five weeks. Let's plan something really special. And he said, well, I was thinking I might get married. It wasn't his turn in the first place to ask. And before I could answer, he said, I've talked to my three children, my AA sponsor, my attorney, and my accountant. They all think it's a good idea. Is that romantic or what? Could you have turned down a proposal like that? I said, well, let me go to Tulsa. We'll talk when I get back. And I came back Monday, and I said, let's do it. If I had been 20, you would have thought I was pregnant. That was the most hurried-up wedding you have ever seen. Bob was ardent Episcopalian. I grew up Southern Baptist. I didn't have a church and a minister, but he did. I've always thought Episcopalians were a little aerobic. Now, no offense, but it's... Stand, sit, kneel, stand, sit, kneel, stand. I was like a bull in a china shop. We had the mandatory premarital counseling session. There's a little neighborhood church. I said to the minister, how many people will your church hold, thinking of a guest list? He said it'll hold 122 Episcopalians or 144 Baptists. (laughs) I walked right into it. I, of course, said, why more Baptists? He said, they're narrower. (laughs) Our children stood with us. There was someone rude enough to suggest that due to our ages, 
we have, we have someone play Amazing Grace as we walk down the aisle. <laughs> we were married in December. In February, we bought a house in Salado, which is a really charming little village on Highway 35 between Austin and Waco. It's not a retirement center, but a lot of people retire there. I've been told the average bra size is a 38 long. But <laughs> I debated on that one, too. But I think that is so funny. That was in February. In March, Bob became ill, and in June, we were told he would not recover. And I grabbed onto you, and I held on by my fingernails. And you supported me like bookends for the next year and a half. He died in December of 1993. He taught me a great deal about living, as someone said earlier. And uh, he taught me a great deal about dying. He never uttered a complaint. My experience with men has been they do not make good invalids. <laughs> but he, he was incredible. The, the day of his death, he said to me that morning, it's time for me to go. I said, you have fought this long and hard, and if you're tired of fighting it, I will understand. And he said, I don't want to leave you. And I said, you won't ever leave me. But I said, it's awfully hard to say goodbye. He said, there's only one thing worse. I said, what? And he said, never to have said hello. I've talked about this now for six and a half years. Every time I talk, and I don't usually feel quite this moved. I told you, you were very safe people. So everywhere I've talked since then, I have urged you to say hello to each other. You know I don't just mean a greeting, hi. I mean be the first to take an emotional risk, the first to say I love you, the first to be a friend. I wish you could have been at his memorial service. There was the bank president and the tattooed bikers. <laughs> you know what a motley crew we are. The Rotary Club president and the kids who worked for Bob. The greatest comfort I was given was from an Al-Anon friend in Denver who wrote to me and said, God did not take your husband. He received him. I give you that because it comforted me so much. A wonderful Al-Anon in California, Winnie Eddy, used to say, if God closes one door, he opens another. But she said, it is hell in the hallway. <laughs> I, yeah, two more minutes. I used that for, for a meeting topic one time. I said, what do you do while you're in the hallway? Interesting answers. One person said, I tend to homestead. I just snuggle down and get comfortable, and when the door opens, I resent the draft, she said. <laughs> Another one said, uh, well, I tend to try to open the locked doors. I get out a fingernail file and I push and I probe. <laughs> she said, I know it, it isn't time for them to open. It's like taking the bud of a flower and tearing it open. You don't get a flower. You get a torn up bud. <laughs> Another one said, oh, but sometimes it opens and I don't like what I see in there. I don't like what my next assignment is. And I don't want to, I just don't want it to open. It's my belief that while I'm in the hallway, I'm, I'm being readied for whatever it is that will be there when the door opens. Well, you did what I asked you to. You did love me back while I was talking. Thank you. I was very much aware of it. 
I always close with a promise from our literature. I haven't memorized it yet either. But it says, today, this very moment, is all you're sure of. And that flashing instant has gone to join the past even before you're aware of it. With this dizzy spin of time, the only safe way to make each moment count is to make your Al-Anon responses habitual. You cannot go wrong following Al-Anon's teachings. With these teachings, there is no regret for yesterday, there's guidance for today, and there's hope for tomorrow. So that's the promise with which I leave you on this cool springtime afternoon in Lincoln, Nebraska. I can promise you no regret for yesterday and guidance for today and best of all, hope for tomorrow.